Thank you for leading us in worship music today. That was really beautiful. I have been listening to that song for hundreds of times in the past two weeks. That is not an exaggeration. I love that song so much. It is beautiful and exactly what roots us and grounds us, this God that we meet in the book of Revelation, this God who is holy forever. Other things rise and fall. Everything else fails in the end, though. But this love of this holy God remains. So I'm praying today that you would be rooted in that love. I always ask God this question, what, you know, getting back, you prepare a sermon and then you pull back from it and you say, what is the heart of God for God's people today? God just said, I really, really, really want them to know how much I love them. I want them to understand my love. So that's what I'm praying for today, that we would catch a, a glimpse of the love of God, that we would see this love of God today and be reminded of what lasts, because the love of God is what lasts. Would you pray with me as we open up the word of God together? Our God, our holy God, all those angels crying out, holy, 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 worthy, worthy, worthy. They see you for who you are. We want to see you for who you are. Let us now understand more of the depths of this love that is beyond what we can even grasp. How long and wide and high and deep is this love? God, would you pull us to your heart, we pray. Let us hear from you this morning. In the name of our Jesus, the one who is holy forever. Amen. We start a series together today from Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and it's a bit like reading other people's mail. Have you ever gotten a text message and started reading it and suddenly you really do know it's not for you? You're trying to make sense of it. You're trying to understand why he might have called you babe in that moment or why she is referring to that experience that you didn't ever have with him. But you just can't get your mind around it. You know, when you pick up other people's letters or postcards or text messages, it truly is just invasive and reading other people's mail. But the reason we struggle with the scriptures sometimes forgetting context is because it's timeless. The truth is the word of God is a message for you and I. It's a message for those who went before us and for anyone who comes after us, though we pray Jesus comes in our lifetime. It's a message that transcends time and generation. But then it can cause us to forget that there is a time and a place a particular people and a context that God wrote that message to. So in this series on the book of Revelation, we're going to try to hold both. The timeless message for you and I, the message that God has for you and I today, because this word of God is alive and active and present, ready to speak to you and to me. And then we're going to dig in deep into the context. We're going to look at what was the place that this letter was first written to. Because you have to understand in the scriptures, especially this section, John, the disciple of Jesus, 
was writing not pastoral letters like 1st, 2nd, 3rd John or like Paul's epistles where he's writing a letter and sending it off to the church and the Holy Spirit led in that way and the messages for us, stop arguing, consider each other above yourselves, rejoice in the Lord always, you know, bear each other's burdens. All of those are from the epistles. They're these letters, pastoral letters to the people of God. But John wrote something different here with this. The Holy Spirit inspired him to write the words of Jesus to the churches. So it's in red in your Bible. This is the message of Jesus to seven churches, the characteristics of whom will be with us in all the way until Jesus returns. We will have their joys and their struggles all the way through. So though there are variances throughout this series, and you'll notice that is true, there are four elements that most of the time take place in these letters. There is a characteristic of Jesus that applies to that church, some way that meets their need, the way that they can see Jesus that meets their need. There's an affirmation to the church, what they're doing right, what they're doing well. There's a rebuke to the church, and there's a reward, a reward for if this then this is what you get. Remember that there's something that you're waiting for. There's something that you're longing for. So as we look at these together, as we look at these letters that have specific time and place and yet speak to us, we're going to see what God was communicating in that time. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 and like Paul who journeyed from a place and then he journeyed on to another place, I just have to stop to show you this map first um, because he did journey here. Ephesus, it's a port city right there. This is where the first, first letter is written to, the church at Ephesus. And we have some dear people that are back with us who journeyed all the way to Japan and then came back. So would you join me in help, helping to welcome back Howard and Alex? They're back, guys, they're back. They journeyed all the way to Japan, and now they're all the way back to Grand Terrace. Side note, but we're so glad they're back. Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. We'll see in a moment why it's so important that Jesus is pictured as the one who holds it all. Because when it seems that things are falling apart, we turn to the one who is sovereign. I'm holding it all. Seven churches, seven stars. I'm holding you all in my hand. And what a comforting picture that must have been to them. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To those who are victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This letter to these people, this place located on the western coast of Turkey, 
which is now no longer waterfront. It was a port city, but now it's about five miles inland. I was in these places that you're about to see, and just even going back through my pictures, I felt like, ah, I need to go back. I love this place. It's so awesome. But it was the gateway to so many beautiful places, the jewel of Asia Minor. It had a population of 250,000 people, the home of 20 pagan temples, artistic beauty, cultural learning, erotic pagan worship, world trade, criminal activity, sorcery. It all flourished amidst great wealth. The coins found in ruins at Ephesus say, the first and the greatest. This is who they were. This library that you'll see, which I love in Ephesus, had over 12,000 scrolls. That was a massive collection that they were able to have. As residents of one of the most sophisticated cities of the Roman Empire at the time, the Ephesians enjoyed such luxuries as running water, indoor toilets, fountains, gardens, surrounded by magnificent columns, colonnaded streets paved with marble, gymnasiums and baths, that library you saw, the theater, those, that seating for 25,000. And yes, I did take a minute to sit on those toilets, you know, you just have to know what they were doing. But you notice below, and which I wouldn't have noticed if I hadn't sat down, that there's plumbing, that they could just, it was amazing. If you think of what they had in the time, this was an incredibly sophisticated and wealthy city. It was a, a city of influence. At the heart of the city's life and economy was the worship of Artemis, a fertility goddess. The temple dedicated to Artemis was massive. 120 columns, 450 feet long, 220 feet wide. It was considered one of the seven wonders of the, of the world at the time. Because Artemis was considered so powerful and protective of her temple, people came from all over the world to deposit their money there and then the Ephesians loaned it out with high interest rates, which brought more and more and more wealth into the city. They were able to do so much, they thought, because of this protective goddess who made them successful, rich, and powerful. This is where Paul came. In his second missionary journey and into his third missionary journey, the Apostle Paul came to the local synagogue and using the Torah, the prophets, the life of Jesus, he expounded to them the truth of the reality of God and how the kingdom of God had called them to live and what God was all about. It says after several months that he came to the lecture hall of Tyrannus and every day for two years, Acts tell, tells us that he preached the good news of Jesus. He was there, Acts 19, 9 and 10 said, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. He preached there daily for two years and it spread from there so that the whole area knew about Jesus. I, I don't imagine that he was there denouncing Artemis or denouncing the other pagan worship, but instead I think he simply unashamedly spoke God's truth and the implications impacted people, and people were drawn to God. Two and a half to three million people showed up there yearly for worship. It was a very influential place to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to tradition, John the apostle came to Ephesus in around AD 70, and at that time, John would soon or had just written the book of Revelation, which includes this message that I read earlier. 
the Roman emperor Domitian also was in power and he started to insert himself as also a person deserving of religious worship. Now you'll see him for a moment, at least his head and one of his arms, because this was taken from a statue and it's on display, but it was about 21 to 27 feet tall. He decided he was gonna be called Lord and God and even by his own wife, right? So everyone had to bow down at least annually to this huge statue, 21 to 27 feet tall. You could see this statue from sea or from anywhere in the city. So this was something that would have been required of these people who had come to hear Paul and who were now believers in Jesus Christ, who were declaring Jesus is Lord. Domitian said, every year you must come before me before my statue and declare that he is Lord. Can you see how the message of Jesus was disruptive of the worldly power that was in place for them? So Domitian was demanding this, and this is his temple right here. His temple was massive there, and he required this penalty death or at minimum in danger of losing any ability to do trade or to work in the city. So imagine, imagine these people that then Jesus writes this to. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Imagine what they were facing, what they daily had to come up and at least annually had to come up against these struggles. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Here this is a hard-working church preaching the gospel, spreading the good news of Jesus to the whole world. They were vigilant about purity in the gospel they were doing as they were told. They were watching out for wolves among them, protecting the good news of Jesus that they had received. They were vigilant. Is it possible to do all the right things and still miss the heart of it all? God says, return to your first love. Now this is either first as in the love you had at first, or this is either return to placing me first in priority. So we have both. Return to your first love. Place me first above all else or return to what you had when you first believed. Immediately reading this letter, I thought of John 3 with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is there and he comes to Jesus at night and remember his passion. Remember that he is a man who is seeking to live rightly before God. Now, they get a bad rap when we talk about the, in the New Testament, when we talk about Pharisees and Sadducees, but they were passionate, many of them, zealous for God. Nicodemus comes to ask because he's burdened, because he doesn't want to miss if God is doing something in the world. So he comes to Jesus and he asks him questions and Jesus says, you must be born again which caused Nicodemus to feel frustrated. Can I enter once again a second time into my mother's womb? I'm old. 
Did you catch that? Which in Bible times means he was probably 30 or 40, by the way. Uh, just so that we can all feel old together. He says, you want me to enter a second time into my mother's womb? And it's not listed there, but I really think that Nicodemus said immediately, are you serious? Really, Jesus? I think that was not listed by John. But he's frustrated because he's being invited to do something that he's powerless to do. And I think birth and first love are very similar in that. How many of you had anything to do with your birth? You had something to do with it, good. You were born, you were there, right? Did you decide when to be born? No. Did you decide when to be born? Did you decide when to be born? No, you can't choose that. You don't get to choose. We didn't plan it out and schedule it and orchestrate something. And so he's telling him, it's giving in to something or being open to something that you can't control. So how many of you scripted falling in love? How many of you planned falling in love with God? That suddenly you could see God for who God was and your heart was drawn and you were pulled and yet we feel guilt, we feel pressure when we're like, I want to feel that again. But it was a gift the first time and it's a gift the second time and the third time, and the fourth time. So he's allowing them to realize they're missing something while saying, you can't get it on your own. You just need to turn to me. He says, repent, which in the scriptures is teshuva, turn from where you are. You're hard working, you're persevering, you're doing this, but turn from where you are and turn to me. Because birth, Rebirth, first love, and falling in love again are all a gift. So Jesus is drawing their attention to something they don't have that they can't actually get on their own. I know your deeds, Jesus said. You're working hard. You are demonstrating perseverance. You don't tolerate wickedness. You endure hardships in my name. You have not grown weary in spite of it all. You stood up against some crazy earthly powers, and yet you've forgotten that it's all about love. The invitation of Jesus is to return, to turn. And verse 7 talks about the reward. It, it says the invitation for those who hear, I will give you the right to eat from the tree of life. He's reminding them of eternity. He's reminding them of what is coming with God forever and always. Can you imagine this as a dialogue between the Ephesians? Jesus, don't you see what we've been doing? We're persevering. We're not growing weary. Did you see Domitian? He's insane. And we're standing up against that. We're making sure the gospel goes to all nations. We're preaching, teaching, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you're with us in this. And Jesus says, yes, I see it all. Oh, and I love it. But I love you more. I want your love more than anything. I want your heart. I want your duty and your devotion. I want your perseverance and your passion. I want your labors, but I also want your love. And 
I'm not sure how you process this or how they process this, but sometimes it doesn't stack up against what we've been told about God. That as long as we're doing the right things, that's what God cares about most. That as long as we're doing all the things and they line up, that it's okay because God cares most about what you do. And I have sat myself as well as with other people saying, I've been doing all the right things and yet there's no love in it. And I believe God's response here with this was returning to first love because love is a response that it's coming back to understanding who God is and how God loves them. You are loved. You are loved. So if you don't feel anything, if you want to, but you're just not understanding how to respond in love, remember what Nicodemus experienced. Rebirth, like first love, is always a gift. The word Jesus uses is repent, which just means turn. Turn to my face, turn to my heart, turn to understanding who I am. Let me see you turn to me because I can give you what you can't get on your own. Turn. It's not about being perfect. It's not about having it all together. It's not about making sure that you are always doing all the right things. But turn to me. I'm the one that can do this work in you. In this advertisement, this national campaign, there were these magazine ads. And it, of course, for the Humane Society, what do they always show? They don't show like uh, dogs that are grown. What do they usually show in those Humane Society ads? Puppies, kittens. They don't show the grow, what they grow into. Uh, we were talking about heaven, the kids and I, and like that in heaven we would get to keep them as puppies, right? Because we love, when they're at that puppy stage, they're so cute. If they could just stay puppies the whole time. So of course on this Humane Society ad, there's a puppy and a kitten. And it's trying to get you to rescue animals. And it said on the bottom, it's who, who owns them that matters. It's whose they are. It's whose you are. It's whose we are. The people of God belong to the one who is love, capital L. And it's that love that makes all the difference. The, the zeal, the passion, the labor, duty, it all matters. And none of it endures except the timelessness of the love of God. It's an invitation to what matters most. Perhaps you felt the pull like the Ephesians that this week some things have shifted in priority. Domitian had his pompous claims, his giant statue which now is just a pile of stone. Did you notice that in his temple? I love history and I love archaeological sites, but you have to admit, he, his giant statue, plus his temple, is just a pile of stone. Pompous claims. Money, power, position, none of it endures. We can set up all these things in our life that we think matter most, but everything else fails. Love endures forever the love of God. So we are invited to turn. We are invited to love again. We are invited to see that God wants our heart, that God's love is wooing us. 
and that this love also shapes how we prioritize the rest of the things that are vying for our attention. Because just like the Ephesians, we have things that demand and, and draw us and pull us to their lordship. Yeah, we don't, many of us have these giant statues that we're asked to bow down in front of, but the pressures are just as real. The things in our life that pull us are just as real. So I'm here to say, yes, I see you. Jesus sees you. You are living with perseverance. You are detesting wickedness. You are standing up for what's right. You are living the gospel in powerful ways, and it's beautiful. And Jesus affirms that. And Jesus says, in the midst of all of it, don't forget I want your heart the most. I love you. I love you. I love you. And I want your love.